right, Zig coming in on the top Tay on the show. We have David J. David J. of Bauhaus, of Love and Rockets, and now the Night Crickets. This is a super epic chat we had. Um, I'm very, very stoked about it, and it was such an honor to chat with David J. Um, the Night Crickets is the, the new band, and it consists of David J., Victor DeLorenzo of the Violent Femmes, and Darwin Miners. Incredibly epic lineup, and the album matches. The album's called Free Society. It's out now on all streaming platforms. We're going to listen to a tune in a bit. Um, just going to do a little self-update. Um, lots been going on. October's been a wild month. Um, a lot of cool things, a lot of not-so-cool things. This is being recorded the day after the year anniversary of my mother's passing, and Halloween and October is always kind of a, a special time. We used to hang out and watch old horror movies. So this year, this year's been, this year's been a little different. Been carrying on in, in doing that and kind of being in it for all the good and bad that's come with it. But, the, the this series of interviews that's coming out so has helped out a lot and this being the first first entry we're going to talk to each one of the night crickets and hear their perspective and how they perceive this album and how it came together from each angle and celebrate this epic release and having something like that to focus on and kind of celebrate the season in a way um, has really helped me handle handle everything that's been going on i find myself um not avoiding avoiding these emotional ups and downs but being in it and then also having an outlet that's exciting has really helped out um yeah also if you're new to this podcast sorry that was a lot but if you're new to this podcast i play in a band called c level letters c dash um we are playing october 13th Thursday at No Class, opening for uh, Joe Buck Yourself. It's going to be a really fun rockabilly punk night. So if you're in Cleveland, that'd be a fun one. Also, November 12th at the Winchester with Wanyama for their comeback, um, also in Cleveland. And that's it. No more plugs for me. That's what I have going on. Night Crickets is what we're going to talk about from here on out. So David J., this was a really, really cool, insightful conversation. And uh, so many insane stories which are going to come out of this. But actually, a lot of Cleveland-based stuff, um, which was really cool and relatable on my end. One of which being Peter Loeffner. Now, returning listeners will recall, a year ago or so, I talked to Adele Berté, who's a singer, songwriter, and professional vocalist with accolades a list a mile long. We talked with her about her new book, Peter and the Wolves, which was a memoir of her, her musical upbringing, her artist journey, and her guidance from Peter Loeffner, a Cleveland-based singer-songwriter. The first track on this record was written about Peter Loeffner, the first track being Black Leather on the Inside. And that's what we're going to listen to now. So uh, pay attention to that, that guitar riff loop. Uh, David J. tells a really cool story about where that came from. And here we go. Black Leather on the Inside, The Night Crickets, and the album is Free Society. And Rheingold 
ritual is the formula. Black leather on the inside. New York round the corner. And the devil is on your doorstep. Cause he knows you're staying in. Though part of you is always out. But life is where it's thin. Black Leather on the Inside, The Night Crickets, Free Society's album, available now on all streaming platforms. Um, yeah, so Peter Loeffner, he was a musician who brought punk to Cleveland, and he was a founding member of the band Rocket from the Tombs, which broke up, and each half went in different direction. One half formed the Dead Boys, and the other half formed Perubu. So... Very cool individual who wasn't around too long to see what he started in a way. Um, but it was cool to talk to David J about him. And we'll get into that later. He also has, David J also has his very, very cool story about David Bowie um, and meeting him. But before we get to that, one last thing. If you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on any of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool guests and sharing their insight with you. So without further ado, Here's my chat with David J. Kind of get a basis of where you kind of like started. Um, so did you start with guitar musically? Oh, uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A okay. cheap, a, a cheap um, guitar. Um, yeah. And uh, I was in a, a bunch of guys who all wanted to be the lead guitar player. And we sort of we wanted to uh, form a band, but it wasn't really a proper band, but it was just a bunch of us who were inspired really by David Bowie. Yeah. And Ziggy Stardust all like getting together and trying to work out what the hell we're going to do. And nobody wants to be the bass player. And I was also in tandem with being into Bowie. I was into reggae. So I, I was inspired by the bass sounds of reggae. And I thought, well, that's the bass guitar. I don't mind picking that up. Yeah. So my first, but my first bass was actually my, my cheap, crappy electric six string guitar. And I took the top two strings off, turned all the treble down on my amp and all the bass up. Nice. And that was my first kind of makeshift uh, ad hoc bass. That's awesome. Was it a, it's, you know, reggae, reggae has that, the bass cuts right through. And I think it's that syncopated rhythm with everything else that really makes it shine. And kind of lets that yeah. bass be heard and be its like its own force within that. That's oh like, yeah, so it's integral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, that's cool. So, what? Um, so you're st- you started off with guitar, and then 
moved based in necessity because I I told that's I think that's the story everywhere. Every every guitar guy wants to be lead, wants to be up front and doing the shredding bits. But uh, yeah. it's that kind of it's it's that more it's more music there's more musicality within the space and filling it. Um you studied with a guy named Jim Tyson, right? Yeah. And was he like one of those uh, shredder guys that was showing you Oh uh, no, not at all. No, not at all. No, he was a he was a jazz guy. Yeah. He was uh yeah, he was very subtle and um he was into singer songwriter stuff. And I just had a few lessons from him. I mean, I would go around to his house and he would as a special treat at the end of each lesson, he let me play one song on his beautiful 1967 Gibson J45 acoustic. I'd play a song from the Beatles songbook. What Beatles tunes were you, would you gravitate to? Oh, God. Um, Norwegian Wood. They were the more acoustic ones, you know. Um, God. Let's go. It's going back. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, like sort of mid period, like Rubber Soul, the more acoustic songs on that. Uh, a couple of songs from uh, the White Album, the acoustic numbers. Um, yeah. That's a, you know, it's a big move to kind of want to step to the bass and be be in a band. You know, a lot of, like, what age what age were you when you were figuring out and being taken away by Ziggy Stardust? 14. 14, yeah. So, like, that's, like, that's a, that's a huge, like, mature thing to do to be, like, I want to, I want to like support, you know, and find and to find a way where it's interesting and cool and exciting, like the fine reggae. Um, well, it kind of fit my personality as well. You know, I d didn't feel like being up front, up front. Um, I was more, I was happier being sort of two steps back, Yeah. you know, and keeping yeah. a kind of semi low profile and just getting on and doing, doing the job. I mean, I do, I do have that other side though. I do have the, the more um, extrovert, shall we say, side has come out more as I've got older, and I, you know, sometimes I just, I just sing, you know, I, I yeah. just perform as a singer, um, and that actually the, the actual height of my experience in that area was when I, I performed with um, a thirteen-piece jazz orchestra in Detroit. Wow. It's a bizarre orchestra. We 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 made an album um, called Carpe Noctem. And I'm really proud of that one because that was kind of that was really out of my depth, and I I like that challenge of being a kind of uncomfortable, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that's like to be behind like an instrument, kind of supporting how you sing and how you approach singing, and then to take yourself out of it. It's so strange. Like, what do I do with my hands? Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, I don't have any problem <laughs> what to do with my hands. I I I just find you know like expressive movement comes very natural to me so that's not a problem i know what you're saying yeah yeah you can hide behind it so it's more a psychological thing you know you have an instrument there and it's kind of like armor right whereas if you you don't have it you're just singing you you have no armor only your personality you know or your vibe that you put out yeah yeah and it's a vulnerable place to be because like mm. the voice is something that people they don't hold back on, you know, like you can tell when someone is moved by it and like, and that instrument kind of helps guide that. Well, they're doing two things at once. Good for them. That's cool. They can be okay at, you know, one, um, but wow, that's like, so kind of, so kind of moving on. So diving into like reggae music, when did like, like, I, I know there's a big Jamaican scene and um, culture around where you grew up. What like were some of the early bass lines that kind of stuck out and like you got under your fingers that made it possible? You know, they're like, "Be I, this is this is what I'm gonna go with." Yeah, uh, things like Toots and the Maytels, mm. Desmond Decker, um, and then Lee Scratch Perry, the Upsetter, and that Lee Scratch Perry led me into dub, and that was a big. That was a very big like leap forward like getting into that area you know just like so everything's stripped down and and the thing that is pervasive is the bass and it's mixed right up yeah and it's very very forced i think like king tubby um 
Yeah, King Tubby and uh, 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 Mikey and uh, Mikey Dread and um, Lee Scratch Perry, three three big ones. Yeah, Dub's and Dub's like a, a fascinating world. It's like it's like the negative space within a painting. It's like it's yeah. the more you take away, the more it like kind of like comes to life. And like yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of like it's sculptural in that way. Yeah, and yeah, abstract. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's so beautiful about it. And it's cool because, like, uh, some of the some of the artists that would really they would take another track, you know, and just tear it apart. And then now you're yeah you're finding like this beauty within it kind of pieces of a song before you're you know taken away from what already exists. And deconstruction. Uh, right, right. Um, that so like that's a whole like mind jolting experience. Um, you you did work with Uroy, right? I did a track, yeah, playing yeah. with you, Rise, another hero. That's epic. Yes, that that was that was a wonderful experience. Yeah. How'd that come about? Through the the producer. Yeah. Um, um his name's just gone, it just slipped from me. It's gonna come back. <laughs> um he was putting together uh a bunch of um different takes, um different artists putting them together with you, Roy, yeah, and using contemporary artists as well as some of the old Jamaican old guard. And um, he asked me to play on it. Uh, and I was absolutely delighted to do that. Did like, so was you, Roy, giving you like direction with it? Or was this? Oh, no, no, no. Okay. I wasn't even, I wasn't even, even in the studio ah. with the man. I think he was back in Jamaica. I mean, he's yeah. pretty old when yeah. he did that. So he did, he did his um, his vocal to a basic track, hmm. and then it was it was sent out to the musicians. Not many of the musicians were actually in the studio with him, and um, you know it's just down to me to to come up with some bass and any other ideas. I played some little keyboard thing on it, some bells, and I worked with uh, my friend DJ K Robert Cakley, is a really great engineer. Um, and he's very much into into reggae, so we just we worked away at it and then sent it back to them and, and to the producer and to and to Uroy and they liked it. So and it was one, yeah, it was a it was a single, um, love 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 and dub. Um, like hearing it back, were you surprised by what they did, or did they just keep the track as is? Well, we can't. We kind of mixed it, me and Rob. Okay. We so. did our mix, and then they, they just kind of they mastered it really. Okay. Um, so there wasn't that much they did. You know, they just sent this sort of the basic the stems, the vocal stems, and so just a really basic rhythm. You know, the drums. The drum. We kept the drums, and then I just played played along to it. That's so cool. That's so cool. The work with a a dub master, man. Wow. Oh yeah. Well, in, and in Northampton, see, there was a very big scene. There's a lot of Rastafarians there, yeah. and they would have, uh, yeah, they would have this, uh, they would have a, a regular event, like twice a month in uh, this big cavernous room, and they would have a sound system come in, and they would have toasters like Uroy and I, you know, like toasting over the top, and um, it was just, a, it was a, they had a goat's head soup, and, <laughs> and it's just like, it was kind of, an autonomous free zone because the police would just leave it alone. They were everybody smoking ganja, but they, you know, the police didn't interfere because it was just it was not worth it. And because it's just all all um, uh, bl black brethren, you know. So we, I would go there. This was me and Daniel from that house yeah. and uh, my brother and uh, one other friend. We'd be the only with four white guys in there. And uh, no trouble, you know. So they they, they kind of looked at us like, who are you guys, you know, why are you coming here? The first time we went, but then we would, became regulars and it was like they're really friendly and it was very cool. Was this like before Bauhaus or was this like after? It was, it was just before Bauhaus, just like not, 78, 77, 78. Yeah, yeah. So was this like kind of like uh, a really like one of your first like experiences with like uh, immersing yourself in like another music's kind of culture? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, yeah. 
That's profound. That's cool. Did you um were you, like because I know there was some other kind of like the the pop group kind of had some of the dub influence. Were other oh, yeah. groups like that kind of uh, highlighting that as well that influenced your playing? Yeah. Um, well, Pill was a big one, especially with a metal box. You know, and Jar yeah. Wobble, what a brilliant bass player, just right. totally in the pocket and really influenced by dub. I mean, that's where he's coming from, you know. Um, so those, yeah, they come immediately to mind. Um, XTC did a did a really interesting dub EP um, from their, it was like a dub take on their album. Um, it was called, uh, was it Go Plus? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's very stripped down. I still got my copy of that. Yeah, so that was that was interesting to hear that. Yeah, it's it's like I was like it, I don't know. It's amazing how like more comes out when you take stuff away. Like, yeah, it, or or more, and maybe it's just more shown. But like, I don't know. That's such kind of like a higher like even like music musically when you start playing. Like everyone wants to start doing the, the solos and stuff on David Bowie, you know, like they want to do the shredding stuff. They want to play fast and play a lot. But the, the things that impact are taking those away, you know, it's, it's the less, yeah. the less being said, it's like, uh, or I guess to put it in like uh, written context, it's like a, a quote says more than maybe the passage through the book. Yeah. So I suppose it's like sort of the distilled essence. Right. Yeah, I just remember the name, the, the producer, Dub Gabriel, cool. the, the guy behind the Uroy track. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, he, he's a great, he's a great guy. And he introduced me to um, the master musicians of Jajuka from, yeah. from North Africa. And I, I did a, I played with them. He had the, all those guys around his, his flat in San Francisco and invited me around to this sort of uh, open jam session. Wow. And uh, yeah, they were they played nonstop for hours. Yeah, and it and um, yeah, and it was just sort of like local musicians or inviting musicians, really good ones, just sitting in with those guys. And then Bashir, who's the the leader, would give you the nod, and then it's like terrifying. You'd have to take a solo, you know. Yeah, but I loved doing that, and uh, yeah, it was a, and I recorded that day after that session. I recorded with Bashir and with Dub Gabriel. And we did this, we did, it was a very, very special moment because his uh, son was being born in the village in Chajuka. He couldn't be there because he's on tour. So that very night, and it was time, it's making me shiver now thinking about this, but we went down into the basement recording studio and we improvised this, this song to usher in the guy who is gonna be the new leader of the master musicians of Chajuka in the future. Because it's a heritage thing, you know, yeah, it's passed yeah. down. And we, Salahadin is his name, and we ushered him into the world. And and it actually occurred, the birth occurred when we were making that music. Yeah, it's a, and it's really powerful. The piece is very powerful. Oh, man, yeah, holy, like, that's that's incredible. Like, I remember Joe Strummer's radio show got me hip to, uh, to them. Yeah. And, like, Man, to, right. to be there in that that prominent of a rite of passage, yeah. I, I I don't know how you find another musical experience that can kind of get you that moved. Besides, maybe a thirteen piece yeah. jazz band that you're front <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, checking out. Jeez, I'll, I'll I'll um, you send me your email and I'll I'll forward it to you. Yeah, okay, yeah, definitely want and to we, hear that. We put it out. We really release it as I say. What. Job Gabriel released a single, and then it was picked up by the station here, KCRW, which is a great yeah. station, and they made it their featured track of the the day, you know, and it was available as a download. Yeah, amazing. How like so? Okay, kind of like um, honing in on like uh, when you're playing a piece with a group of pe a large group of people, right? And like it's there's no like kind of constructed form. It's just kind of a loose form or not mm. even a form at all. And mm. you're really sure. riding this wave. Like mm. there's like this kind of like group trance mentality that like doesn't come yeah. out of like any other type of musicianship. Um, and like, I think dub, like stepping in with dub at the, your very kind of like early age of like making your own music, like kind of preps that kind of like ability to ride that, that, uh, 
because I, I think a lot of musicians get lost without what key am I in? What what you know what I mean? What, yeah, like the, um, I don't care about that. Yeah, it's it's a matter of tuning into flow. It's a flow, and we really had that with the Night Crickets album, like yeah. big time. You know, it was very improvised. And when I was doing my bass parts, I mean, how the process was, Victor would lay down the drums. And and for the duration of a, a track, it'd be the three minutes, four minutes. Mm. And uh, so it wasn't loops. It was actually, you know, uh, played real time as a, like a constructed rhythmic bass. And I would purposely not listen to what he'd done. Even when I went to the studio, yeah. I didn't even listen before I did a take. So the first time I heard that, was when I was recording the bass and the red light was on it and I was doing it. And it was really quite weird, uncanny, uh, because I, I started playing bass lines before hearing the track, just before rolling it, you know, and recording. And what I would come up with, just in spur of the moment, would always fit. And it would just, that's, I'd kind of like had a premonition yeah. of what this track was going to be. And in the right key, the right rhythm, the right feel, mood, and uh, all the bass lines on the album were conceived in that way. And now, like, was he just sending drum tracks, or was there more? Was there like progression kind of already put in? It was just drum tracks. Just drum tracks. But there were, you know, there were, you know, there, you, there were passages. You know, okay. he would change the rhythm, and there would be a little fill, and he'd go somewhere else. You know. So then we built on that, and then I would send that to Darwin, and he would add guitar, keyboards, um, maybe some vocals, then send it back to, to Victor. He would add stuff, like keyboard stuff or vocals, send it back to me. I would add um, vocals, or I had this drone. It's a great little drone box from yeah. Bombay called a Rajini. Yeah. It's based on a tambora, right, right. and it's an electronic... Uh, drone box I, that's all the way through the album if you listen that drone okay yeah you know like i heard there's there's definitely a space through the record and like that's cool i didn't pick up that it was it was all the way through that's sweet i got lost in like the movements of it yeah sometimes it's really super subtle was it um so with like a so okay so jumping into like this track like you guys um you and Darwin and Victor worked on Darwin's record, right? Starfishing? Or no, it was the EP. Super yeah. Hard. No. Um, I, well, I produced Starfishing and played a bit on it. Okay. Um, and uh, the single we all played on. Yeah, that was the first thing that we did. Okay. In the, yeah. So was that kind of what inspired the Night Crickets? No. Um, it was because um, we... Darwin and I went to see the Violet Femmes at uh, Coachella. Yeah. And we, we're both like, really into the Femmes. And, um, and then Darwin was backstage and he met Victor and they hit it off. And they started, they exchanged emails and they started corresponding. And then Darwin came up with the idea of them. This was when we were in, now we're in, you know, pandemic lockdown period. And Darwin suggested to Victor that they exchange files and work on some music. And then Victor said, well, would, would David be into doing that as well? And David was into doing that very much so. <laughs> so that's how it started. Yeah. And we just did the whole album without meeting up. It's all totally remote. Wow. That's incredible. You know, there's like a, I think there's like this, like, and it's with like creatives and, in general it's just like this ability to appreciate like a thing that may be overlooked like a photographer is going to see an image a, a passing of time that is going to resonate in the moment or a, a writer is going to mm -hmm. hear a passage that's going to capture it and like make it into a bigger thing and like i think musically to be able to hear just a drum track or not even hear it just feel a drum track and be able to make a record like um like you guys did is like it's being able to appreciate those fleeting moments. And, like, I think the kind of dive into one of the tunes on this record, um, Soul Wave, I think really kind of the idea of energy being fragile and the idea of, like, mm. 
kind of being within this energy and be able to shape and express it. I don't yeah. know if that's what that soul wave was going for, but after talking yeah, with you for yeah. a little bit, it seems like that's really uh, how you approach a lot of things. Yeah, that that is that is that is it. Yeah, and we find that we're all very much on the same wavelength. There was no sort of hesitation in all of us felt this, experienced this, and when we were working on our parts, it was very quick, very spontaneous, just reacting to each what each of, of us had done prior, and it just we had this flow to, all the time. So I mean, we didn't even plan to do an album. We were just gonna, we were just experimenting, and just you know enjoying the process. And but it went so quickly, we had an album before we knew it, and we actually had more than an album. We got, and then we got enough now for a, a, a six-track EP. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. We just kept kept on, you know, kept going. Was there like a a, a track within the within this record that was like, oh, we gotta we gotta make this a record? That, that like solidified that this has to come out. Oh, as soon as we started oh, working just... on on the music, uh, I think the first one was certainly one of the first ones was uh, the first the opening opening track, "Black Leather on the Inside." And uh, it's interesting you're from Cleveland, um, because that that track was inspired by uh, a Cleveland original uh peter lofner you oh, familiar with him yeah 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 i just okay uh, oh well how, how so yeah sorry don't let me cut okay you. well um um how i discovered him was i was playing uh i did a, this circuit of living room shows i and i was doing that for actually over 10 years just solo and yeah. i'd go all over the actually all over the world but a lot in america and i was down in santa fe and I did uh, played in a, a backyard. And after my set, I was approached by this gentleman, rather distinguished gentleman, with a deep chocolate brown radio voice. And I thought he's got to be a, a, like a DJ or something on the radio. And he turns out he was, and actually a very respected one down there. And uh, he he said that my songs reminded him of Peter Lofner, who at the time I wasn't familiar with. And he said, you should cover one of his songs, you know, go and check him out. So I did. I, when I got back to my digs, I just I went down a rabbit hole and I discovered Peter Lofner big time. And I was really blown away. Um, he said to play um, Cinderella Backstreet was the yeah. song he recommended. And he said, I can imagine you covering that. I'm actually thinking of, of doing that. Um, I actually ended up rec uh, recording a version of his song Baudelaire. Which yeah, I love. Yeah, yeah, it's a I great song. You. So you're, it's great. You're familiar with him, um, and I recorded that in Prague, and that turned out really well. Um, and so that I bought the box set, the Peter Lofner box nice. set, which is yeah, yeah. beautiful. And then one night, this is in the middle of working, like getting ready to go into the studio. I was playing that, and one of the tracks stuck. The the needle stuck, stylus, and it just kept looping on this strum guitar yeah. and a, a beat you know and i just heard that and you're talking about like picking up on the fleeting moments and seeing the magic in them well i saw that and so i just recorded it on my phone because i loved what it was doing the loop yeah. had a fire going a log fire at the same time next to the speaker so you could hear that on the recording anyway i took that in and victor had sent a drum beat and I thought, I bet this this is going to sync with that drum beat when it's when I heard it. Because I, I, this was one where I didn't do the bass. I just I, I had this recording and I wanted to see what Victor had done, see if it syncopated. And sure enough, it did. It just flew it in at random and it just gels with what he was playing. So that really like inspired me. And I thought, okay, well look, we've we've stolen this from from Peter Lofner, so I'm going to make a little tri tribute to him. So that's what that song's about. It's about Peter Lofner. And uh, yeah, so I just, actually, uh, I, I recalled Lester Bang's obituary where he's talking about um, about the ritual that Lofner had when Lester Bangs would go around and listen to, to read records and he would he'd be on 
it scared Leicester Bangs because I mean, if he, it's going to take a lot to scare Leicester Bangs, but apparently Lofner did it, and he would have this thing of um, drinking, drinking beer and taking Valium, shooting and uh, <laughs> shooting, uh, uh, you know, yeah. like and doing it like one after the other. Now yeah. his thing, so I re- referenced that. Anyway, the whole thing is a, it's a tribute to Peter Lofner, who I think was like a, absolutely inspired musician i mean it's amazing he, he died at 24 oh that's so cool now that now that i'm now that with that explanation i'm hearing it come together in my head i um, yeah yeah I, I i became hip to him through adele berte are you familiar with her no okay adele berte lived with peter Lofner for a while and um oh She's a singer-songwriter and a backup singer for like uh, Tears of Fears and like she's done a lot. Her register is crazy, but she released a book called Peter and the Wolf, and in that oh. book, that's basically a memoir of her musical journey and her life journey and dealing with her uh, um, sexuality and how Peter was this kind of guiding, misguided figure, and like, and uh, so huh. she like preserved this like this beautiful part of Peter that kind of got gets, you know, buried behind the madness. And she had a a big to do with getting that box set together, which is an incredible box set. Um, Yeah. So if you email me that, I'll email a link to her book. Like it's, it's incredible. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And he, he also had, I'm sure you know, but he had a lot to do with a Perubu and. um, Oh yeah. 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 And like that was rocket, rocket from the tombs. Right, right, right. Like it, because of him, like punk rock came to Cleveland. Like the yeah. first television show he was at, and he got so <laughs> out of it, he scared television. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, <laughs> so cool. Like, and I went down that same rabbit hole with that that box set, and there's so many good songs on that, and it just warms my heart to hear that uh, more people are going down the Peter Lofner rabbit hole. That's amazing. Yeah, oh, cool. Um. Another like so with a with the with the title track Free Society, that opening bassline kind of hit me as yep. like a Curtis Mayfield like kind of inspiry like I don't know I'm sure it's not at all but and there's this like one like tension note that resolves perfectly was that one of those basslines that you just started playing before the drums came in? Well, all the basslines were yeah. It just wow. came to me just like spur yeah. of the moment. I started playing it and. Rolled, you know, recording. That you know, like I think there's another thing with like, uh, kind of like practicing being in that flow state, being in that creative like headspace where stuff like mm-hmm. that can just happen. Because like, yes. a lot of musicians get caught up with like technique and like making sure they hit something that's correct. And yeah. Like, so was that kind of like always how you approach songwriting? Not really. I mean, it takes it takes a lot of experience, I think, to get to that 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 state, yeah. you know, um, and conf- self confidence. No, because when I started, I I wanted to I wanted to learn how to play the songs, you know. So I, was just, right. I would just listen to records and listen to the radio sometimes, just play along, you know. Um, but just repeatedly, like I would sing along, and I just keep playing it. And, like I remember playing to um, Elected was a, one of the first ones. The Alice, Alice Cooper. Cooper, nice. Like that bass line on that, you know, the descending thing, you know, and just getting very frustrated, and because I, you know, I was like fifteen or something trying to work out that, but I did, I did get it in the end. Also, like Golden Earring, Radar Love. Yeah. Okay. Things like that. Um, but no, it's sort of this. What this? Where I am at now has evolved now it's actually tied in with doing uh transcendental meditation which i think really yeah. helps to to obtain that flow and that state you know of just letting go it's really letting go not not kind of seizing you know the uh the conventional way of um like playing in the notes um and the, the the no real right notes. I remember reading something John. It was a John Cale interview, and he said he didn't give a damn about 
what key is something is in and it's just what feels right and it can be completely off in an atonal way but it fits you know and that, that was uh that rang true with me so it's yeah so i don't when i do sessions i quite often won't with other people's music i won't ask what key it's in or anything about it i just it's just very uh like a feel thing i just i'll just play along and just feel it and and try and get into this kind of liminal state of mind where you it's almost like semi trance state and you're just i'm reaching for something that's just not it's not it's not conventional i'm just going for i'm reaching this like almost beyond my capability you know trying to pull down pull down stars i think that's well said it's like it, because it's such a open like I, I think your music like getting ready to talk with you i dove into all all facets of of stuff i can get um and like there's a lot of that feel there's a lot of that kind of expansiveness but like mm. um, expansiveness yes like in, in the best like like in a way yeah. like okay i gotta go back and hear this again and then like something else illustrates itself and like uh, and through multiple listens, there's like a bigger, there's a bigger thing coming through. And I think if mm. if that's the headspace, that makes so much sense. Like, yeah, that's really cool. With like, the bass playing that, that really came to the fore with Love and Rockets. Yeah. There's a big leap. I hear that in my own playing. And, it, and it's just that exactly what I've just been describing. It was going, going for something that was a lot more um, expansive. Yes. And that's why I think that tied in with also at that time experimenting with psychedelics. Yeah. And uh, the expansiveness that comes from that. Yeah. Because I didn't really do psychedelics until the first Love and Rockets album. And I've, I was into it. <laughs> like, uh, into it. <laughs> Acid. Yeah. And like, is that what kind of like was meditation a thing that followed after, after or during? No, I was doing that before. Okay, okay. And but this... only like, yeah, only the last. I was sort of on and off, and it wasn't like serious transcendental meditation. It was, I was taken from different type, different uh, disciplines, and and not being very disciplined about it actually, and letting it go. And but it was only I did a, it was very well timed. I did a. The, the proper TM course here in LA, and it was uh, just before the pandemic, so that was really timely because um, I do it in a very focused way now, and I have a mantra that was given to me, you know, Sanskrit mantra, and right. I take it seriously, and I find the time twice a day, and I do it, and um, that really helped get through that uh, weird time right but also it, it informed my you know musical practice which was mainly the main endeavor was the night crickets okay. that like yeah like i i think i i found myself during that time too having to like buckle down to like i i, I routine to myself just every day like and mm. like you know just i spent time uh, doing doing like a physical routine, then like a mm. small meditation, and then like writing. Like I had multiple writing sessions and like learning session, like where I'd work on just technique and stuff like that. But balanced in between it, and that kind of structure yeah. of allowing maybe it was an hour or forty five minutes and doing that every day, like really yeah. helped me get through that too. So like that totally I did the sense. same. Yeah, I did the same. And the main thing, the main thing I did initially was painting yeah getting back into painting painting big canvases which is something i had in mind for years and just never got around to it always procrastinated and i thought i thought okay this like this is this shit's going down it's gonna be it's gonna be weird but so this is the time so I, the first thing i did before everything was shut down was to go out and buy a bunch of paints and brushes and big canvases and hauled them back to my apartment and just set up this room in the back. And then I just, I painted these uh, like eight big canvases and I didn't have a subject or anything, but what came out of course was 
the pandemic situation, all facets of it, and it's just reflected, you know, in the, in these works. Beautiful, like, and to dive into that like other practice too, and give yourself that space for it. Um, do you plan? I know you've done showings before. Are you planning to show those? Yeah, I am actually. I've got a couple of galleries here in LA that are pretty interested. Well, pretty keen. Um, so I just got to work out when which one to go with and when I can do that. Very cool. I wanted to yeah. ask about uh about silver silver for gold, like writing a play and addressing yeah. like and and running one like that. Like, what brought up? I mean, that's a whole different writing endeavor, like compared to this kind of like loose based, like strong yeah. plays pretty pretty formal um what brought that about um well the, initially um i had a publicist versa manos who's connected with theater she represented a lot of actors and theatrical people and um she was in touch with this company atlanta called dad's garage a pretty respected independent theater company and they were they were looking for playwrights to um write short plays they wanted to put on this program of uh the limits it was um it was a 15 minute play i think it was 15 minutes or maybe it's 20 minutes i think it's 20 minutes um anyway looking for contributions and um and my versa she thought i i could do this and i never even thought about writing a play before but she said you should do this so I got a feeling about it, and uh, and she said it in such a convincing way that I I took her seriously. And then I was actually on a long road trip as a passenger, and I started writing, yeah, writing this thing that was um, they say write about what you know. So I wrote about being a teenager in when in the punk days in 1976, and going to see the Sex Pistols, and and just you know that whole explosion um and how it affected me and it, i it was called uh anarchy and the gold street wimpy uh because there was a an appalling incident that occurred in the gold street wimpy which yeah. <laughs> um which i write about yeah um you know i was very very drunk and very naughty um anyway yeah and i ended up I ended up somehow i mean this was the day the the um, anarchy in the uk came out and my mates and I would go to the pub, the racehorse pub, and get really plastered. And the record store was literally next door, Spinner Disc Records. And I bought that single. I actually bought two copies, one for my my girlfriend at the time, and one for myself. And and then we all went down the Wimpy Bar. And I, but I was I was really blind drunk, and I ended up looking for the toilet. And I ended up I ended up in the freezer with all these slabs of meat. And I ended up peeing in the freezer <laughs> with this steam coming up and these these hunks of meat. And it's like, yeah. So I write about that, you know, and it's yeah. um Anarchy in the Gold Street Wimpy. Anyway, that it was obviously put on it was put on, you know. Yeah. But they had some really great playwrights like Tony, Tony Award winners. So I, I was I had some really um August company. I was in some August company there and they flew me out to Atlanta and I saw it and it was seeing these actors, really good actors, interpret my idea, ideas and my, my, especially the, um, just the, um, just the imagination that they brought to it, you know, um, and, and their own ideas. And it just was kind of lit a fire in me. And I thought, I love, I love this. I love it. And so that was, that was the first spark. And then, and then, you know, I just thought, well, I, I could do more of this. And the, the, I had this idea to write about Edie Sedgwick, who'd always fascinated me in that whole world of Andy Warhol, Velvet Underground, and Silver Factory. But I had what really made it exciting as an idea for me was that it, it was not just telling that story, but it is telling it in terms of Greek mythology and aligning it to that. So it's really the story of Persephone and it's her journey. And Persephone is Edie and she goes to the underworld, which is the factory. And I have Andy Warhol as Hades 
and then I thought, how do I like? How do I explore this more? So I have Bob Dylan's Orpheus, yeah, and then um, the Cerberus, the three-headed god that guards the gates of the underworld. I thought, I thought, who are those heads? And I thought, okay, it's, it came to it came to me straight away. They're three acolytes of Andy, and that's Chuck Wine, um, Paul Morrissey, and Ondine, and those are the three heads, and they can have a conversation, and they're the gatekeepers, and so it's just. Just yeah, just use using it, you know, seeing it in terms of Greek mythology and it's her journey, and um, and it plays out in an interesting way in 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 those terms, and it's so and also it's a song it's a song cycle, and so I wrote like twelve songs, kind of in the style of the Velvet Underground, but really like early Velvet Underground acoustic, right. yeah. But I use their tunings that they use. So they're all so every string tuned down to E. Just all of and the other one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the other one they used was Gaddad, the you know the old folk tuning. That's that was a favorite tuning of theirs. And the, once you have those tunings, it really sort of casts the music in a certain area, certain gives it a certain tone. And so you know the the songs are really objective. You know, looking in from the outside, observing what's going on. Then I have Edie. It's more or less a monologue, and she's d- just talking about her life. She's actually dead. You find out at the end of it. Um, and, I, and then I had this other character, who's uh, sort of like Greek chorus, and he's he's. A, I had this vision of this this creature when I was driving. Talk about like being in a liminal state i was driving uh like three in the morning driving from la to san diego one night and i just this image just flashes in my head and i was in the middle of writing the play and then it had to go straight into it and it was just it was a man in a wheelchair with a blanket over him and a white horse's head and i thought what the hell is that <laughs> and i thought it was like uh that's like a centaur but in reverse <laughs> so i called it norik which is chiron it really written in reverse yeah and and this character he as i say is like greek chorus but he he describes what's happening in terms of greek mythology and he just appears behind a screen until the very last scene where he comes out and ed she's basically passing into the afterlife and she communes with him and uh, there's a very magical moment that where the the soundtrack is the Everly Brothers' "Dream," yeah, um, which is her favourite song, and they, they they touch fingers, and he takes her hand, and that dream starts up, and he escorts her off into the into wherever they're going, right. you know, heaven, if you want to interpret it in that way, or some kind of afterlife. That's beautiful. Like so, like after after having like the that that's in, like to to write something like this and kind of like plan all this out. Did you find yourself afterwards like analyzing a lot of works in that kind of same uh, like Greek god uh, like kind of headspace? Because like it, it takes a while. I've always to... been in, I've always been interested in that yeah. from, from when I was a kid. It's something about that really fired my imagination. So yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I went. I went back and looked at it. Yeah, that's inc- like it's, I find myself whenever I like figure out a little bit of like how someone approaches a thing, I find myself overdoing it in in a way that like you know it's a healthy, fun like kind of like obsession in a way, and you start analyzing things in a certain way. Like, oh, I wonder if I can put the culture changes here. <laughs> oh yeah, that's weird. Huh. Or, or you're like pulling apart. Oh, that's a that's a walking baseline played backwards or whatever. You know, what I mean, just weird bits where you start to like. Or, or the hero's journey well, is. A... I was just going to say Joseph Campbell. That's what I went back to, and the hero with a thousand faces, and uh, yeah, all of that. And I actually took a. I took a course when yeah. I was in the when I was started writing the play. That was it was for film writing the film script, but using mythology, and all all the myths, you know. And it was actually a really good course. The teacher was very good, so that was really that was really useful. Yeah, the fine like because like some of those are like I mean it's they're kind of they're everywhere and everything and then you got the kind of like yeah. uh, Jungian approach to it too. That kind and of, uh, that was something else I tapped into. 
Yeah, the definitely. Right. Definitely. Oh yeah. Very cool. Um, the kind of like bounce off because I man, I really appreciate your time, and I don't want to, I don't want to keep you too long. Sure, no, it's, it's um, good. Awesome. Well, thank you. Um, one the bounce back to the record. Um, one yeah. song that struck me as very like Violent Femmes influenced was a uh, Down Below, and especially with the backup vocals, I was getting a very Violent Femmes like kind of like melodic idea is that kind of what yeah. you guys were going for no no nope. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that, that uh, it's just occurred to me and i hadn't thought of this before but that kind of reminds me a bit of um Perubu in a way yeah okay i can hear that I, yeah i love Peru. i saw their first gig in london at the marquee club yeah oh man how was that have them over oh it was like, brilliant yeah, yeah he had the anvil David uh, Thomas had the anvil, yeah. striking it with a hammer, sparking it. It was brilliant. Yeah, oh, I love I love that band. They brought everything that they they brought out. Endless, and they they're always like I love his metaphor with like he's I, I saw this interview clip and because I talked with David a few months ago, and uh, he's he's such an interesting character, man. Like would he, yeah. this interview clip shows him talking about a coffee cup, and he's like, "On the bottom, that's Perubu," and you're like that makes sense like and how that guy hears music deconstructs it and puts it back out like is insane it's one of those things that never get old like trying to figure it out yeah we did two gigs with them in new york um they opened for love and rockets and i felt kind of embarrassed that was the case because i felt like we should have been opening for them because i was such a fan you know (laughs) like how'd they go like was it like because if oh they were well received yeah yeah and then I heard I heard from um, the guitarist. Um, what's his name? But he was he was a, a fan. Of, he was really into our music, you know, which was nice. That's beautiful. It was it was mutual. That's super cool. Yeah, yeah. Because um, like with I don't know, depending on what form of Perubu you get, you don't know like. But uh, another kind of bouncing off, I guess, the Cleveland. You worked with uh, you worked with Trenton Reznor. What was that like? Yeah. Uh, Trent's always been great. Um, he's very supportive. And, you know, I've only had great experiences with Trent. Uh, he's a really lovely guy. Um, very, and very creative, you know, and expansive. You know, he has that mindset. So, like, w- approaching a session with him is it is it kind of like sending tracks or are you guys working like i don't know i never i never worked in the studio with him i mean i'm only i just know him as a friend and a supporter uh, i mean he invited Bauhaus to be special guests on tour and we would hang out a bit you know on the on the tour prior to that he came to see love and rockets and in New, when he's in New Orleans and invites us back to his place, showed me a studio. And so Peter Murphy did some recordings while we were on tour with him, just sort of spontaneous covers, and they did each other's songs. Maybe that's what you're thinking of. I think that's what I'm thinking of. I think I got that. But that that's cool, like just kind of going off like the whole like, there's there is a weird ethos in the Cleveland music, and I'm glad a music scene and music history, but I'm glad it's resonating with other people. That's like, and yeah. like in in the in this kind of way, that's like maybe hidden underneath all these layers, which is beautiful. Mm. Um, was like uh, were you guys like as far as like a uh, were you ever moved by like the no wave scene and the no wave? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Very much aware of that because when we went to New York, that was happening in like nineteen eighty. Right. We played one gig with uh, DNA. Oh, cool! They op- yeah. opened for us, you know, our Todd Lindsay, and that's actually where Ke- that's where Daniel got the um, hit playing the guitar with a drumstick. He kind of cribbed that from Arthur Lindsay because <laughs> he was using that. We love them. We thought they were really interested. James Chance, you know, right? Um, all that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that- Adele Berté played with them too. That's that's my tie-in with that. Okay, yeah, she like yeah. played guitar or something. I think. Oh, okay. Um, okay, yeah. yeah. I'm seeing uh, Lydia Lunch on Sunday. She's oh, yeah? invited me to be on her guest list, and she's playing in LA. So I've never met her before. We're going to meet her afterwards. Oh, she's incredible. <clears throat> um, I got to talk with her a little bit, and I saw her playing Canton, Ohio, and like 
uh, as far as like the no wave ethos, she's it. Dadaism mm. is all about it. She was yeah. so cool. That's exciting, man. That would mm. be a fun Sunday. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Um, so like, oh, oh, that uh, the um, what was I gonna say? One thing I did like with Dead Can Dance. I mean, this is I'm 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 no I'm bouncing everywhere now because I want to pre- uh, respect your time. Um, Bauhaus covered a tune of theirs. Um, was it like so? Those types of groups. Did you find yourself like influenced or influencing them? Um, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say they influenced us. I mean, I've got great respect for them. I also think Brendan Perry is brilliant. His solo records are brilliant. Um, and I know you know he's he very much appreciates our music. Uh, sort of just mutual respect, really. But there's that one live um, live album you guys have where you guys cover a Dead Can Dance tune. Yeah, yeah, Severance. It's a right. beautiful song, yeah. So, as far as, like, a, an influence, as far as a band being influential, the most influential band, I would say, would be the Velvet Underground. Okay. That makes sense with the kind of space that's there and, like, that open tuning and just, like, the the... Yeah. Yeah, and the angularity of it, and the atonal mixed with very melodic music, you know, and all the offshoots from that as well. John Cale solo, Lou Reed solo, of course, you know, Nico, and we played with Nico. You know, she, yeah. she actually, Nico actually wanted us to be her, her regular backing band after she played a gig with us in Manchester. Yeah, she asked us to be be her band and come on tour with her. That was in 1981, I think it was. 82. That's in, that's incredible. Like, so was that? Did she have her album out yet, or was that before that? I'm trying to remember when. Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember. I mean, she's had a few albums. I don't know. We did waiting for the man. She yeah. asked, you know, she wanted to do a song with us, so we said, "What about waiting for the man?" So we did that, and then she came another to another gig. We did it again. Lofner covers that too on the that box set. Um, yes, he does. Oh, that's it. Oh, that's so cool. Like, what was the turning point on? No, we have to do our own thing. Or oh, we thought about it for about fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It was you know it's flattering, man. Yeah, that's so cool. Especially that like with someone who influenced you that most, like, yeah. that much. Mm. Oh, that's so cool. Um. One other, I guess, one other kind of Bauhaus question and like one-off influences. Um, you guys, you did a film with uh, David Bowie, The Hunger. Did you? Hmm. I mean, I know it like, and you guys play at the beginning of it. Did you get to like interact with Bowie at all during the process? Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah, he was he was great with us. I think he was kind of relating to us as the like outside of the film industry and the boys in the band kind of thing and. Uh, but I had I had a very special experience with him. Yeah. And yeah, so they were setting up for a take. So he was in his dressing room, and we had an area that was just next door, adjacent to his his dressing room. And there was a jukebox in that area, an old well, it's a 1950s jukebox, really well stocked with all like 50s, 60s, and 70s singles. And I was just there on my own, you know, just having a look. At the, at the the music on this jukebox deciding what to play because it was all working and then i i became aware of this presence behind me a looming very strong presence and then i hear this voice do you mind if i pick one <laughs> and it was bowie yeah so i went oh no <laughs> please be my guest you know so then he's sort of looking it over and he presses the the digits and he pr- plays um, Grooving with Mr. Blow by Mr. Blow. Do you know that? Instrumental. 1970. It's a great instrumental. Features harmonic part. And then he just, he starts dancing in front of me. So just meeting him there. So, and he's like, you know, that's like a couple of feet away from me. He's just a full on, like he's on stage dancing and smiling, that smile. And I'm just kind of nodding, thinking, this is surreal. <laughs> and then I got, I got kind of cheeky with it. And I, that song, I always thought that he cribbed the um, the harmonica part from that for his track, um, A New Career in a New Town on Low. Mm. 
So anyways, he's dancing. And I said, this reminds me of something. And he just, he kept dancing. He goes, yeah, what? I said, oh, it's one of yours. Goes, oh, what? I said, it's off low. He goes, what is it? <laughs> I said, uh, a new career in a new town. And with that, he put his finger to his lips, winked, smiled, and carried on dancing. So I got got his number. Yeah. So it was amazing. That was amazing. <laughs> That's insane. That's so cool. Yeah. And is that yeah. he just danced until he had to hit hit the stage and or hit the hit the camera mark hit his mark. Well, he just answered that song. And then, uh, yeah, he they were pretty much ready. So he had to go back into his dressing room. You know comb his hair and then we he did the sh- the scenes oh wow they had the takeaway of that just this guy fully immersed in all of it and shared shedding this knowledge on just a tune he enjoys and th- for you to be able to pick it up that the yeah in that moment like <laughs> yes. if i was in that moment i would just be like flabbergasted like uh, duh, duh, hi, like you know what i mean like to be able to like trace the musical lineage and enjoy <laughs> that <laughs> like, yeah yeah it was really magic yeah cool. well you've worked with like so many so many people in these collaborative efforts like out of all these uh, like what is like kind of a nugget of advice that you found has helped you through these processes to get the most out of them. Like, has anyone like kind of like showed you kind of like some type of insight that has been guidance that you keep finding yourself going back to? Um, well, I would just say, I'd say generally just be open to others, ideas, receptive. And, um, and anybody can have an idea. It doesn't even have to be one of the musicians. It can be the tape op and just be not have any any damn ego and just like listen and be open and consider anything that's coming in and then you can reject it or you can accept it you know or you can spark an an idea of your own and, and that's the nature of collaboration that's the only way that collaboration can work um so just to to maintain a attitude of receptivity open receptivity it's well said david thank you so much for your time my friend um i really appreciate it i've really enjoyed i mean i've been diving into your career forever so this was a treat to get to talk with you and this new record the night crickets is so incredible and uh thank you yeah this has been a really great interview it's quite unusual you know the questions you've asked and you obviously know your stuff and i Actually, I quite thoroughly enjoyed it. That that means the world to me because, like, I'm all afraid to, totally afraid to bore whoever I'm talking with with the same questions. Not at all, no. No, 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 no. Yo, Spike Spiegel here. You just listened to Zig of the Gig podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang.